Hello, and welcome to FinTech Impact. I'm your host, Jason Pereira. Today, I have David Carpreece, Vice President of Consulting Services at InvestorCom. InvestorCom has been on the podcast before, but I brought them back on the podcast to talk about how the implementation of uh, CFR and Reg BI, both in Canada and the US, have basically panned out in the last year and where the successes and challenges are. And with that, here's my interview with uh, David from InvestorCom. Dave, thanks for taking the time today. Yeah, thanks, Jason. I'm glad to be here with you today. So, Dave, InvestorCom has been on before, but before we get started, just uh, give everybody a refresher of what InvestorCom does. You bet. So, InvestorCom is a fintech company. We provide software really focusing on helping the industry make better financial decisions. And what that means, our focus is on compliance solutions that aim to make being compliant as intuitive as possible and uh, removing friction and barriers from advisors and dealers. Excellent. Reducing friction. God, there's enough of that in my life. Okay. <laughs> so specifically, this is not a normal interview. InvestorCom has been on before. You can, people can go back and listen to it, uh, that episode. But this was specifically a conversation around the big changes that happened in regulation, both in Canada and the US in the last year. Uh, they both just happened to have the start date of January 1st of last year. And the and that, those two big changes were, of course, Reg BI in the US and uh, the CFR uh, client-focused reforms in Canada. Both had very similar requirements, but different, of course, two different domiciles. But nevertheless, they were big changes and they were big kind of increases in, let's call it onus to ensure suitability across the board. So talk to me about, first off, how you guys saw the challenge and how players in the market that you were servicing maybe saw it differently. Yeah, well... I'd say there were really two two major challenges that came out. The first one was a requirement to monitor for product changes. So how do changes in the environment and in the ecosystem affect suitability? So without an advisor or an investor doing anything, uh, when fund companies change their products or things change about their products, suddenly a portfolio may become unsuitable. So that was kind of the one area. And the second one was a requirement for advisors to, to assess alternatives as they make recommendations with clients. Excellent. So those are, I mean, when you start looking at the number of structured products out there, you know, mutual funds, ETS, alts, you name it, that is a substantial lift, right? Like there's a lot of product on the market. So basically, to me, this is this starts first and foremost as a data problem. So I'm sure you agree. Talk to me about how basically you went about trying to solve the problem. Yeah, absolutely. And and that's where we started with the data because you know, while while it's a it's a pretty obvious or, or or clear regulatory statement about monitoring for significant change, no one really knew. So three four years ago, when the regulatory journey began, no one really knew the size of that problem. They knew it was important. Yep. Saying you should look for significant changes that's obvious, but how often does change happen? So back in 2019, we 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 started digging through data, and it looked like there are over 2,000 changes a week in the Canadian mutual fund landscape. So that's where we started and said, there's no way on earth an advisor specifically, or even a dealer can slog through that amount of changes and figure out what's material or what's relevant. If there's any kind of downstream suitability impact or, or whatever, that that's just a daunting task. And well, not only that, I mean, the question becomes, there's such a thing as a change and is a material change, right? So like a, ETF or whatever it is, dropping its MER by one basis point. Right. Is it material, right? Like I, I would argue it's not, right? A manager changing on a mutual fund 
or getting fired, that's a material change, right? <laughs> Potentially. So, so it, it comes down to not only how do you take these 2000 a week and, and screen and filter out the noise and look for the signal. Right. And, and that's where the trend both in Canada and the U S from a regulatory perspective is to make these regulations principles-based. So you use the term material change. The regulators actually intentionally did not. They introduced a new word called significant change and left it up to the, the dealers to define it. So while the, the concept is well understood, how you bring it to life can de- vary yeah. from dealer to dealer. And, and, and frankly, that doesn't surprise me because, you know, the funny thing about regulation is everybody in the industry wants, everybody except the regulators, want it to be clearly delineated lines as to what can be done and what can't be done. And the regulators are like, no, because you're going to try to find the loopholes and sneak around that. So we're going to use principles, right? Because like, end of the day, you can definitely stay within the, the, the call within the lines, but you can violate the principles. So, which is funny because just a side story in conversations with dealers, it causes them no end of grief. Like they should tell us exactly what to do. And my response is no, 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 no. That's technically your job. Your job is to take the principles and make sure you don't violate them. And do it. <laughs> what else? Yeah. Right. And, and and that's where you know our, our perspective tends to be. This actually opens a door for those dealers to self-define or, or really focus on how do I want to interpret this differently in support of my business and my business practices. But to your point, the, the compliance officers they would prefer hard and fast, really clear-cut criteria definitions of what do I need to do, how do I get it done. Yeah, I think that 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 will be established over time as precedent sets the floor for what they expect to see. I mean, as the regulator and. I've seen this in conversations with them. As they go in, they're looking, they're checking boxes right now and make sure you have something. Then they're going to start looking to make sure that something actually works well. Then they're going to right. see something that works really well and be like, that's how it should be. And then they're going to enforce to that. Yeah, exactly. And so it's a, it's something that evolves over, over time. And unfortunately, there's a few a few bodies in, in along the way or you know, sacrifices that are made as you know, people made probably decisions that weren't good or yeah. interpretations that uh, the regulator won't agree to. So fair enough. So you have 2,000 changes a week, as an example, coming into the marketplace. Basically, you're at the thought, you have to look for significant changes. Talk to me about how you solve for that problem or attempted to coach them through solving that problem. Yes. So, I mean, they, the first part was just involved in industry conversations, but especially in these structured and managed products, what are the, the kind of the data points or the elements that you look for for significant change? And while there wasn't consensus, we started, we kind of narrowed it down and said, all right, a few of the key data points that I'll say are are less debatable. Uh, let's take a look at those. Does that narrow and reduce the scope? And it it probably did. We 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 looked at probably four key ones, which were measurements of kind of the the CIFS category, which is just a standard way of how the fund is invested, a risk rating, a time horizon, and cost. MER, as much as it it changes a lot, you know, it's a measurement that 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 you got to look at. Uh, yeah. You know, regulators are, are keenly focused on cost, and so that you know that that cut the the amount of change. To about a third, so about 850 a week, but that's still a lot. And again, that's at the dealer level. Mm-hmm. And ultimately, the reason you're monitoring, there's really two. One is manage the products on your shelf. So that's clearly a, a dealer obligation. But the other one, which is probably more relevant, it's the downstream effect. So when a significant change happens, an advisor has a bunch of activity to do. It's not new activity, but it's the trigger to say, when this happens now, think about the suitability of a portfolio. Think about KYC. Is that updated? Think about rebalancing or any, any changes that need to happen with that client. And instead of doing it on your time, it's done based on a trigger in the industry and a, and a product change. And so when you think of those 850 a week, again, at the advisor level, 
don't, that's even a non-starter. And funny thing is I had a conversation just a couple of months ago. And so this is a year into client-focused reforms with a CCO of one of Canada's largest independent mutual fund dealers. And she didn't have a clue how many of those significant changes an average advisor would have to take action on in a, in a typical year or, or a week. That's not new. I'm not, not kind of singling that out. That's because this kind of change management or change monitoring process, I mean, thanks to the regulators, kind of a new thing. So no one really knows what that magnitude is. And so again, to your point, you know, we, we tackle this as a data problem. And having had a solution in the industry that's been creating this, this audit trail of industry change, we started doing some uh, some sampling this uh, this past summer. But it's and, an interesting problem because it's like a filtering problem. And the question becomes, so for example, dealers serve a wide swath of advisors. So they have to be able to A, meet the standard, to B, provide the tool sets to make you know, the wide swath of advisors' lives as easy as possible. However, the question becomes, how complicated is that each advisor made their life, right? There are... I keep saying people in, in this country, people are like complaining about all this work. And it's like, this is not hard. You need to have investment thesis for how you actually manage portfolios and you do it consistently. And then you just have to look for changes that are pertinent to that, right? Like it's not, it's not, it really is not rocket science. It's the science and it's basic due diligence just being encapsulated in law for the first time, right? So I think there are, to me, I, I will say CFR was a near non-event in that the implementation, just change a couple of things in implementation, maybe document a couple of things a little more thoroughly. But to others I know who basically bought everything under the sun and hold God knows how many fund codes in their book, oof, what a burden. But I, I would argue that they shouldn't have been running their books that way in the first place. Right. And and some of the sampling we did, especially in, I'll say, firms that are open architecture, they have a large shelf, a lot of transfers in on advisors' books. When you looked at one advisor book to the next, they were probably more dissimilar than similar. So that that task of saying, you know, I now have a manageable amount of change at the advisor level. It's figuring that out because, you know, I've got this at the deal level, but I've got to parcel out to each advisor the part that's meaningful to them. And what's meaningful to you won't be meaningful to me because our books are probably dissimilar. Yep. All right. So, okay. So you basically have helped them filter this out. Talk to me about the technology solutions you put in place. How have you done that? Right. So, so we've taken our shelf monitor solution, which builds this industry audit trail and uh, added advisor alerts. So when we when we get in, you know, advisor position data, we're now able to kick out weekly alert files to the each individual advisor based on their positions and only their positions. And basically, it takes that 850 a week at the dealer level to probably about 250, 260 changes a year for an advisor to manage. So that's four or five a week on average based on their positions. And that's kind of a typical advisor that probably has 200, 250 kind of unique positions in their book. 250 unique positions. Okay. So let's talk about what the most popular or biggest issues came down to when it came to material significant changes. Like what were the ones that really stood out? Yeah. I mean, when you look at kind of industry trends, I'd say the last year when we've been closely monitoring it kind of looks like any other year. Risk, some went up, some went down. So it wasn't like the industry is moving or the fund managers are taking their products in a, in a different or dangerous place, You know, if you want to think about it from that perspective. But it's really just the, the evolving change. So things like investment style shift or drift as measured by you know, some sort of a, an aggregate score like a CIFS category 
historical performance numbers uh, and how that how that met, you know affects a risk rating. Those tend to be kind of the key indicators to take a look at that. And typically, that the industry is as a whole fairly stable, right? So so the the significant change is when you're able to boil it down to a handful of kind of areas to monitor and your book, it now becomes really just a handful. Very, very rarely, if we looked at those changes, were there these massive, I'll say catastrophic almost changes in a particular product, but they were shifts. So something went from a, a medium risk rating to a medium high. Well, that's that's significant. Advisors should consider that. But like I said, you're, you've got four or five of those things happening a week, the majority of which are, are MER changes. And so very quickly, you can look at the magnitude of that change. And according to kind of a company policy to say, you know, at this point, I need to take action if it's gone up by X number of basis points or not. Fair enough. So that ends up being left to them. So bottom line is you're arming with them with that. All right. So talk to me about how implementation has gone. <laughs> Sorry, say that again. Talk to me how about how implementation's gone in general. Oh, it it's it's a fairly streamlined process because the the I mean the the beauty of this is is it's working with industry data. The only I'll say client specific thing here is your position file. Mm -hmm. So once we once we feed in a, a position file, it, it's it's pretty much turnkey for monitoring, which is industry wide, and then the filtering, which is position uh, specific. So clients. I run a, a small uh, assessment piece where I, I can do within a couple of weeks, I can assess a, a sampling of your advisors and, and kind of resim or do a simulation of the past year of changes. And similarly, onboarding is, a, is, is we measure that in weeks rather than uh, Fair enough. it's not a big, right. big lift. So that's you pushing the data down to people and giving them what to look at. You have any kind of data or support on the, on the actual usage of that and any kind of data regarding what the impact of this has been? Yeah, it's so it's a little early on that. We're we're yeah. starting we we're keeping an eye on it. Nothing to to really, at least on the monitoring side, to know how big a change that's happening. Certainly at the dealer level, our clients are using this to to manage their shelf and and to to disseminate data. So we we've got activity information. Is it moving the needle on the change side? Not so sure yet. The second area that that I mentioned, the CFRs and, and Reg BI had a change was on the product recommendation and product comparison side. Yeah. Again, really early days, but that's 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 a, a system that's measuring advisor uh, behavior, and and there we're starting to see some early early changes where when you're when an advisor is presented with kind of a relative comparison, things do move slowly, and, and we're starting to see a trend in, yeah. in making recommendations of products that stack up. I'll say more favorably to their peers over time. Fair enough. I mean, the at the end of the day, it's the the dealer's job to enforce with their advisors, right? So that data might honestly be fully supported back uh, to you. So the the result may not be provided back to you. So at the end of the day, I'm very curious to see if there was any aggregate. Well, if we ever get our hands on aggregate data on how many advisors actually did what they were supposed to versus got penalized. I guess the regulators will will put that out in the, in the future. Yeah, we will. Uh, we'll actually probably start seeing some of that regulatory action this year. I think 2022 was a bit of a, a, a pass or or more of an assessment of, of things. But I think uh, regulators on both sides of the border, Canada and the U.S., are looking at Reg BI and CFR as key priorities in their uh, examinations. And I think how products are recommended, how how these processes have been implemented, are going to be uh, all indications that they're going to be a big focus for this mm -hmm. year. Excellent. Okay, so that was on the basically material changes. What other areas were you working on altogether, or significant changes? Pardon me. Yeah, yeah. 
the other one really is on the product recommendation side and how to how to do that product comparison or consideration of alternatives. Yeah. Uh, so so regulators are considering, you know, how do I mitigate or how, how do how do the rules mitigate this uh, recommendation of a of a bias or a conflicted product, and so require this consideration of, of investment alternatives. Too often that that's implemented with kind of I'll say this head to head comparison. I think of my. Uh, my iPhone purchasing process where you select the two models and you do your feature comparison down three pages of data points and say, ah, I want the, uh, the pro or the, or something like that. And so, so too often it's a subjective process where, you know, a rep will pick, pick two products and do the comparison and say, I choose this one. And that's where the approach we've taken again, very much database to say, let's use some key product data points to group like products and then a standard way of assessing them. So instead of individually, they're compared in aggregate. So at a click of a button, an advisor will see how does this product stack up to its peers relative to cost, risk, and performance, historical performance. Yeah. I mean, it's uh, unfortunate we're still having, I mean, in the day we have to rely on historicals to some degree, but yeah, uh, you know, it's only so far that it goes. I mean, my concern, it's it's interesting. I think, um, yeah, your, your concern is to provide those tools. My concern is people throw, shooting an arrow and then, and then drawing a bullseye around it. I found a lot of conversations around that was like, well, I use this. Well, why? I'm like, well, okay. I like them, but I'll come up with some reason as to why I'm using them. It's just like that. Come on. I mean, you know, that, that stuff will filter itself out over time. I mean, frankly, this is, this is not, again, I keep saying from the advisor's perspective, this is not hard. Have a documented process, right? You know, I, I recently, for example, uh, these product comparison inquiries happen from my compliance department, and they're like, "Oh, basically, you put this client in this thing. Well, what was the basis for it? What was the basis for comparison? You know, what did you compare them to?" And it was simple. Like I already come out. Like I, here's my portfolio management process document. There you go. Here's our standards for comparison where, you know, we took a simple example of, look, if I'm going to buy this type of portfolio, what's the ETF equivalent to it at, you know, at, a, at a passive rate? What is a you know major mutual fund company, big independent? And what is a major bank product? It's similar. So, I mean, I looked at that and said, okay, between those three, I've got like a big name, three three big names that it's a very good chance that you try to get the same thing. There's a good chance that those people can't capture a significant part of that market again, that product comparison. And at the end, of the, I ran this by my chief compliance officer, and it's like, look, you're fine. Like you got a, you got a methodology. Right? It's those who don't have a methodology that's concerned, right? So right. you know that's not your issue. You you just give the tools in order to perform that, and and that's and that's been valuable because I have been able to go into compliance systems and and do those comparisons against the ones that are relevant and document that at all, which is something we should be doing. Regardless. Right, and and I think that documentation piece is is the key. Uh, yeah. right? Whether whether you're you're doing it manually or using technology. It's making sure you capture it. And certainly a theme we've heard from the U.S. regulators is in that documentation, that question of how can you demonstrate not only that you've done something, but that this recommendation is in the client's best interest. Yep. And that's a really slippery one. So you, you, it's not about this is a good product. This is the best one. It's why is it in their best interest and not yours? And that's that's it's hard to find the words for that. And I think, yeah, I mean, if you're not using proprietary funds, it's easier, right? Yeah. <laughs> like that, there, there's an inherent conflict there, right? So yeah, that entire, that entire piece too. I mean, I think it also just depends on how you run your, run your business. I mean, what, one thing I said previously is anyone who just basically buys nothing but passive indexes has an easy time because it's like, okay, I have this one Canadian or US ETF. Here's a Morningstar report against every other Canadian or US, like that exposure that I'm looking for. Here's how it stacks up. It's the cheapest in the category, for example, or it's close to the cheapest in the category. 
done. Right. Like, you know, it's 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 a lot easier when you start getting into the subjectivity of things like when you really start going the rabbit hole, like alternatives and you yeah, know, yeah. hard it is to do product comparisons in that regard, because performance doesn't tell you squat because it's hard to really find apples to apples comparisons in those regards. It's it's a lot harder to justify your existence or not your existence, but your but your actions. Right. And I think the the other key part, going back to our, our earlier conversation around principles based, it's not that there's a right or a best product. It's almost more about the guardrails to say, let's avoid as much as possible recommending products that are are kind of clearly not in yeah. the category of, of good, suitable, best, better. But it's not like there's a, a drive, a formula that's going to get you the right product from a regulatory perspective. Yeah, it's not like, I mean, it's some of the feedback I heard early on was advice like, well, they're going to, you know, regulators are going to restrict me on what I can buy. It's got to be the cheapest thing every time. It's like, no, yeah. no, it doesn't. But if it's, Poor performing and more expensive, and then something that looks and looks just like it. You got some explaining to do, right? And and I think that's the, that's the shift. It's not it's not like there are kind of your hands are tied as a, as an advisor to make those conversations. I think professional judgment is clearly there. It's about providing enough context to say when you use that professional judgment, do you know if there are any flags associated with that? And if there are, be prepared to uh, or document your justification relative to those flags. And here's the thing about this. This is also the old, um, you know, an ounce of pain, an ounce of prevention is better than a pound of pain. The reality is, is that if you were held in the court, right, yeah. these are baseline questions that would be asked. Why this? Why not that? Well, you know, we had an expert witness take a look at your portfolio and we found that you're using something that is basically in the top quartile of cost compared to its peers. Why that? Right. right? Like you're going to be put on spot at some point anyway. So having this all thought through and implemented with and documented, it's just, it's really just a forcing the industry into greater professionalism and systematic practice, but also just covering our butts quite honestly. Yeah. Yeah. And I think the, the data around that to start seeing trends and behavior and, and identify outliers, it, while you could always have done that, I think that data will be more readily accessible First of all, to the supervision function within a, within a dealer, but then to the regulators and the examiners too. One hundred percent. I mean, it's it's. I mean, the data is the data is sources for some of this stuff have been there for a long time, right? Like they've they've been well weathered and and, and whatnot. Yeah. But it's it's more so. You know, you've had to come in and take this existing pool of data and data streams that constantly get updated and filter them and create that mechanism for just getting to the succinct thing in this giant pile of straw and finding that finding that needle that needed to be taken out. So. It's no, it's no small task, quite honestly. I mean, like legitimately, how many, I mean, 2000 changes, how many points of data are you actually got, are you tracking at this point as part of this exercise? Yeah, it, it's, it's millions. Like we, we did a, a bit of a fun calculation that said for that advisor product comparison task, an advisor has to contemplate or consider a million data points a day, right? To, to get through her day if she's making six recommendations a day. And that's just looking at five data points and how big your shelf is and all that stuff. And it's, it's not the task of looking at this stuff, but it's a mastery, uh, right? Because this is really about proficiency and mastery before you're making a recommendation. And, and that's, that's insane when you think of that, that volume. Yeah. So, and in practice, it's said per day, but it, sorry, in, in, you know, basically it's said per day, but in practice, right, simply doing kind of like quarterly or semi-annual kind of summaries and audits to make sure you're still in the right position and just keeping your ear to the ground over what are the changes, what new products are coming on there, but having that filtered out and given to you in a digestible way that's so you're not getting crushed by those millions of data points, that is completely feasible. 
It's just a matter of the system and setup, which of course you're facilitating. It is, it is. And you, you use that analogy of, you know, finding that needle in the haystack. And, and I think that has been really our focus to say in the CFR and the reg BI world, how do we deliver needles yep. instead of a haystack that's got needles and tools to help you find the needles? We'll find the needles for you and, and bring them to your attention when you need them. Yep. It's, there's a... <laughs> There's a lot, uh, there's, there's just so much going on there. It's okay. So that those two areas, prod comparison, I mean, that's natural. Those two buttress into each other a lot. So basically to date, you've got your, at least your first implementations rolled out. Everybody got past the finish line, hopefully, uh, in order to meet the regulatory requirements. Where do you see the development of this going, especially in terms of your product development? Like how do you see that evolving in the next little while? Yeah, I, I'd say there's two primary areas. One, evolution of, of product comparison, I think will be, seeing the data roll in. And, and once we see trends, how our, our behaviors or how our behaviors being affected, how do we move that needle further? I think that's going to be one evolution point. And the second one is an emerging theme around count, account selection and recommendations. So very little attention is being paid to that in the early days, but it's coming up as a theme both in, in Reg BI and CFR. There's been some recent headlines that said they want to start looking at you know, the selection of accounts. You know, is it a fee for service? Is it a commission-based account? Oh, yes. Well, that's um, been a real issue in real regulatory spaces. People, advisors flipping clients who are just like buying old investors, holding a couple of securities into fee-based accounts, and suddenly their costs just going through the roof. Right. And so that's where the, the conversation around considering an investor's interests first or their best interest becomes a bit of a slippery slope. So not only and not only is it a process check and 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 balance, it's it's making sure you're documenting again, capturing this information assessing and analyzing the different options of account types and why this was in that investor's best interest. In particular, in the US, the, there's a, a rollover focus uh, oh, yeah, the, the Department rollover. of Labor. And, yeah. and that's one of those where you're typically moving an investor from a lower cost account structure to a higher cost one in exchange for a lot of offsetting services. Well, and, and, and that's really the, that's really the crux of it, right? It's not a fee for fee look at it. It's look, you know, if you're in a low, if you're a buy and hold investor and you move to a fee-based account, but that came with comprehensive financial planning services and everything else that comes with it, that can very well be justified reasonably, right? As long as it was disclosed properly. And the same basic principle applies to, to the to, to rollovers from 401ks. You know, what we're trying, yes, you know, the market's trying to avoid is the regulators trying to avoid is someone being taken out of a very low cost environment, getting no upside and just suddenly paying 5x that amount. Right. And and I think that's where the this I think the future has taken us there. And it's not a distant future. It's like 2023, where some of the, the rubber will hit the road on account selection. And and just from a product standpoint, we're starting to uh, really extend our product into all these different, call them best interest activities that just need to be tracked, need a framework for determining and then documenting these decisions. It's interesting because I mean, and I've written articles on this as well on this issue is that the, you're talking about like the KYP and product uh, specific step. There's also the know your client expansion in terms of being able to properly risk assess them. And and fortunately, my, my frustrations have been with conversations is people can't even define the terms tolerance, capacity profiles, all that properly. They just intermix them into one. And it's it'll be interesting to see how you guys take that data, validate it, and, and basically connect the two worlds together, right? Because right. I think in an ideal world, we have, a same, we have the same yardstick, right? We have the same metric for risk within the profiling that we do in the in the in the, in the product comparison world. 
and the product monitoring world so that when someone comes out as let's just use a risk number like 75 that their portfolio is you know at you know 75 it's measuring the same right. thing it's not just measuring an amorphous number and i think we're we're uh, from what i've seen in implementations at least in this country we are a long way from that at this point because a lot of those questionnaires are based on nonsense but <laughs> it, it is what it is so yeah i think i think you're going to have an entire treasure trove of data there to also say like hey is this account level data actually matching up with the kyc stuff properly and is that even valid right yeah no definitely i think that's Certainly a direction we're all uh, we're headed as an industry too. Yeah, absolutely. So, I mean, that was a lot of change in a short period of time. I say short with tongue in cheek because everybody got lots of warning. But yeah. of course, implementation always waits until three months beforehand. Like, oh, we can't meet this deadline. So I'm sure right now your your clients must all be kind of like, okay, that's over. Are they in the in the and we're in the refining process now? Do you feel like they're they feel like they've gotten through the actual like first you know first surge of this all, or you feel like there's still many of them playing catch up at this point? You know, honestly, I, I think there's still a lot of catch up to be played. That that assessing the the impact on the advisor, I think was was not really well done. Certainly industry wide, but but then firm by firm. So some firms have said, yeah, we're we're covered. We put out a process. Our documentation's in, in place. This is really called practice management 101. So we're all good. And I think as they're looking closer, the burden that that landed intentionally or unintentionally on, on advisors, I think they're feeling some pushback. They certainly yeah. did early, early in 22 and are looking for ways to, to streamline that. So, you know, our advisor alerts was part of that. Say, okay, we got to help you get to the end point here without adding all that burden. Yeah, I think that's also just a you know for some dealers I'll speak about it, it's it's a it's a mindset issue. Like the the advisor is typically been historically the one who gets the the most work dumped on them when this stuff happens at the end, right? Like at the end, and then, you know there's work that has to be done at that level, but to not think through the advisor experience and how to make this a manageable experience is a gross failure of management. Like that that has to be a primary concern of okay, you've got these criteria to hit. How do we streamline this to make it a valid and effective to make you better altogether, but b also not overly time consuming and, and with, with the minimum amount of friction? And too often it's just like here's a oh you got a problem here's a bunch of tools knock yourself out and it's just like wait a minute you just gave a bunch of really busy people more work what do you think the reaction is going to be yeah yeah and, and, so, and especially if if a huge chunk of that work is figuring out what to do or, or you know, sifting through data to find the meaningful stuff, then it it just, it becomes a non-starter, right? Yeah. And so, so that's what we've seen in a few cases where advisor adoption or compliance isn't quite where you'd like it to be. It's not as frequent as you'd like it to be because the, the way, the way it's being pushed or delegated to an advisor is, is kind of not in, in bite-sized actionable chunks. It's, it's required a bit more assessment. Or in workflows, right? Like that's the other thing, right? Theoretically, if someone got a link that says, here's your workflow to go through to verify that these holdings are, you know, are, are fine. And you actually went through a step-by-step process that was guided. At the end of it, you made a change or you kept it the same, but you also documented it. Ta-da, right? Versus, oh, you know, like what product, you can use whatever product comparison tool you want on the side, but this is the reporting tool for aggregating it all. And you are obligated. And here's another tool for something else. And you're obligated to do it before the end of now. Right. Like, so, you know, it's, it's, it's like, I get it. I get it. I think it's, I would say my only message to dealers listening is think more about the curation of the experience for the advisor when it comes to that. And if you, and this is solvable, this is solvable. I've whiteboarded solutions like this before. It's just a matter of, of actually thinking through 
not just dumping labor, not just dumping work. It's it's basically caring about making that workflow as good as possible. So, uh, Dave, thanks so much for your time on this. This is great. I mean, I think this is continuing to emerge. I'll be very interested to see a couple of years once the data and the regulatory filings, and the regulatory penalties, and everything else is happening, just how effective this was. But I think, uh, in general, without companies like yours, we would have been crushed by uh, by the requirements. Yeah, no, great, great uh, speaking with you again, Jason. I really appreciated the time this morning. Yeah, pleasure. Take care. Okay, thanks. Bye. So that was this week's episode of FinTech Impact. Hope you enjoyed it. And uh, again, if you're going, if your advisor going through all this, just think through how you're doing it. If you're a dealer, think through how your advisors can have their pain alleviated. And if you're a technology provider, think about helping them bundle it because this is still the early innings. And frankly, we can make it a lot better. But nevertheless, uh, the winner in this is the consumer who basically hopefully gets a higher standard of care. As always, if you enjoy this podcast, please leave a review at Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, Stitcher, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. Until next time, take care. This podcast was brought to you by Woodgate Financial, an award-winning financial planning firm catering to high net worth individuals and their families. To learn more, go to woodgate.com. You can subscribe to this podcast on iTunes, Stitcher, and Google Play, or find more episodes at jasonperera.ca.